Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Now I'm going to spend some time reflecting on leadership today, particularly leadership that draws on our deepest human values, fosters wisdom, creativity and resilience, and helps us learn to adapt and thrive in challenging environments. I do this because it will be your leadership that will help create a better world. Leadership is what we need in this country and in others. Leadership in our families, in our communities and in our nation. To me, each and every one of you exemplifies a leadership that is both radical and compassionate, original, creative, straight, strong, ethical and true. It is a leadership that sees and responds to suffering takes the time to celebrate successes in the lives for people for whom this is a rare and beautiful thing. You all understand and defend the principles of caregiving. To me, you are the champions of our time and you leave a profound legacy for us all to follow. Some of us understand too well what it means to be morally responsible for injustice. When we see an injustice being done, we feel compelled to respond, even if we do not know how. We exemplify through the life we lead, through our work, through our insights and mentorship and by our example, all that it means to be human, to live up to the opportunity of our existence. Some of us instigate political and social actions that directly transform the ways in which vulnerables in our community are now thought of and responded to in this and other countries. And in doing so, what we also do is find a way of nurturing our future. And I think all of us here can agree that children are our future and we can and we must do all within our power to protect our children as a collective investment in this future, particularly in this worrying times in a world that seems short of good ideas about how to address the complexities of the issues with which we are faced. That is why I've titled this speech, Malay's Meditation and Magnificence, The Leadership Required in Australia. Malaise because we need to overcome this unconscious way of living, this malaise which I believe is the root of many troubling aspects of our country and our lives. In this speech I want to talk about how we might live consciously, to be conscious of how we relate to one another, the world we live in and the opportunities we share. Meditation because in order to change the circumstances for those vulnerable in our communities we need to imagine something different, aspire to and be encouraged by what we see and feel and participate in those things that help our senses come alive. Finally, I want to focus on magnificence, on being the best we can be, so that we can create and co-create with others opportunities that change the status quo for individuals, families, communities and nations. After all, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear that is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that frightens us most. When we ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? Your playing small does nothing to serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that others won't feel insecure around you. When we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give people permission to do the same. And as we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. From the most life-sapping, controlling, colonising, organising mode of oppression that threatens not only those who experience disadvantage but all of us in the room and all of life as we know it. I did a doctorate in human ecology 
which is a transdiscipline that draws on and creates and sustains contexts of diversity. From within this position, I've come to understand that the primary threat to our future and the future of our children comes from a mode of thought which depends on centralising and monopolising power and control, which is the antithesis of diversity and what Indian physicist and activist Vandana Shiva has termed monocultures of the mind. The monocultures of the mind treats all diversity as a disease and creates coercive structures to model this biologically and culturally diverse world of ours on the privileged categories and concepts of class, one class, one race and one gender of a single species. Monocultures, in my view, have created a violent world order since violence is intrinsic to the project of transforming diverse, self-organising systems in nature and in society into centrally controlled uniformity and homogeneity. Monocultured thinking destroys diversity and legitimises that destruction as progress, growth and improvement. Monocultures spread not because they produce more but because they control more. The expansion of monocultures has more to do with politics and power than with enriching and enhancing systems of biological production. Ecologically, monocultures lead to erosion of the Earth's resources and pollutions of lands, water and atmosphere. Politically, this creates centralised control and authoritarian structures. Cultivating and conserving diversity is no luxury in our times. It is a survival imperative and a precondition for the freedom of all the big and the small, and the only mode which, by which sustainability, justice and peace can be attained. This is why I'm concerned with Malays. At the commencement of the 21st century, I know we're looking to secure our economic, environmental, social and cultural futures in an unprecedented time of change in the world. Achievements in science, technology, industry and commerce have brought humans into a new age at the expense of much of the diversity of life and life-enhancing processes around the world. Demographically, we have the largest number of adolescents in the history of our species, many of whom are living in poverty. India and China are becoming the most powerful, technologically advanced countries in the world. Globalised multinational companies have budgets bigger than some countries and our country is at war. That we are in the midst of a crisis now is well understood. Not only do we have to consider international and Asia-Pacific regional issues in our deliberations but domestic issues as well. In Australia it appears that natural and cultural diversity is not viewed as a source of wealth nor a resource for modernity nor for current political models. Indeed, even with the 700,000 people who are First Peoples in Australia, we find it difficult to view our own diversity with the respect it deserves, let alone have it respected by others. Australia is governed by a federal parliament that only has one Aboriginal member. We see a system of service delivery to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people by governments at both federal and state levels that still struggles to deliver the most basic of services that benefit us, we see a system with too many bureaucrats who do not see themselves as accountable to our people or having responsibilities to ensure that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people benefit from their efforts. And we have seen limited engagement with First Peoples in the setting of policy and programs. We're still not fully engaged with a real economy, nor do some of us live in places where a buoyant market economy exists. 
our life expectancy while improving is still happening at a glacial pace. We're not all benefiting from the delivery of education. Our own knowledge systems are still marginalised and sadly we remain overrepresented in judicial and child protection systems. These systemic issues themselves are indicators of crisis subject to data and statistics. Less measurable but no less profound is the impact of a sapping of confidence in and by our communities, a nagging fear that decline is inevitable, that the next generation must lower its sights. The subtle message inherent is that we must give up before it hurts too much. These and other circumstances are unacceptable and form part of the reason why we need to change. In this century, our challenges will be new. Instruments by which we meet these challenges may be new, but those values upon which our traditional societies were built and upon which our success as countrymen and women depend, creativity, innovation, discipline and community, honesty and hard work, courage and fair play, tolerance and curiosity, loyalty and love of country, these things are old. These things are true and they have given hope to those even when there was no hope apparent. These values have underpinned our resilience when all other indicators suggested that we should falter. And what is demanded then is a, turn, is a return to the truth and certainty of those values. These values contain in them the responsibilities and a recognition on part of every Australian that we have duties to ourselves as First Peoples, as a nation, duty that Barack Obama said in his inauguration speech, that we do not grudgingly accept, but rather seize gladly, firm in the knowledge that there is nothing so satisfying to the spirit, so defining of the character, than to give our all to a difficult task. We who assume leadership roles in our communities and organisations probably know more than this as the price and the promise of citizenship. We know that the challenges we face as First Peoples are real, they are serious and they are many. But these challenges are not ours alone. What I am afraid of is that all of us are just as vulnerable to the violence of monocultures of the mind. Some of us have seen horrific things done to children, tolerated horrific things being done to our fellow Australians, to other beings that we share this journey with and in nature. Horrible things that are sanctioned and justified in monocultured thinking and action. Perhaps these things have made you stop and think about progress, but you've felt powerless in the face of it or frightened of the consequences of intervening. And while frustrated, maybe you've come to understand and accept that horror as inevitable and swallowed a very bitter pill indeed. But this doesn't have to be the case. Conferences such as this, where we're celebrating the clawing back, the reclaiming of who we are and who we can be given the opportunity. Not everyone in this audience or other audiences I have addressed will have the pleasure of being an artist or a poet, a doctor or a teacher. Not everyone will know the simple beauty of love, either given or received. It is a truth, however, that everyone will come upon some form of hardship, of pain and struggle and of adversity. In fact, for some of us, it's the only constant in this life. We will all make decisions that affect ourselves, those close to us and possibly even following generations. And it's during these times of adversity that we turn to people who command leadership and martial resources with great effect. All of our leaders at this time in history will need to have integrity, determination, 
charisma, vision, technical and interpersonal expertise, adaptability and even the often overlooked quality of being an experienced leader. All of these characteristics are crucial in helping us deal with and successfully come through this particular time of adversity. And times are adverse. In my own communities, we see that there are many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who find themselves in poverty and who might find my assertions of leadership outside of their realms of influence. For some people, poverty is what they live and breathe, and I'm not just talking about financial poverty. I'm also talking about being impoverished culturally, linguistically, being time poor, isolated, without love, women growing up children without partners, educationally impoverished, children growing up in institutions rather than in the care of a family. There are many ways to be impoverished. Poverty is a human rights issue after all. Some of us can move out of that circumstance and some of us will die in it. And whilst our efforts should be to engage with and direct resources to people in poverty, we do have cause for celebration. Among our number are professors, lawyers, barristers, judges, teachers, health workers, doctors, nurses, academics, politicians, dancers, athletes, public servants, people who are trained in governance, business entrepreneurial thinkers and actors. We have chief executives, chairmen and women. We have marine biologists, social scientists, rangers, researchers. We have people working in corrections and youth agencies as lecturers, representing us locally, nationally and internationally. We've done our teething in health, education, in natural resource management, in regional autonomy, leadership development, organisational management, youth empowerment, media marketing and public policy, in land purchasing, business development, economic development, human rights and political strategy. Some of us have been in our fields now for at least 20 years or in positions to mentor others. We are the emergent leadership. We are modern intellectuals with ancestral and cultural connections to country and we will be taken notice of. <laughs> I'm looking at Stephen Ross down here, my brother. He's been doing this journey with me for a very long time too. But this type of leadership is now critical for all of our affairs because the issues affecting our health and well-being are being globalised and localised. Make no mistake, what we face together as humanity are complex problems that threaten our very existence and no one discipline, person, group, cultural, political affiliation has the answer that we need. Monocultures make diversity disappear from perception and consequently from the world. One of the most dangerous mindsets we have is one that erases diversity, which erases alternatives and gives rise to the there is no alternative syndrome. How often in contemporary times has there been a total uprooting of nature, of communities and entire civilizations been justified on the grounds that there has been no alternative? We know that alternatives do exist but are excluded, but their inclusion requires a context of diversity. We cannot predict what happens, nor can we yet know what we are capable of. But I do believe that Indigenous peoples across the planet and the First Peoples of this country hold part of the answer for our human condition. You, of course, hold the other part of that answer. And what we must do together is create occasions to change the way that we imagine, interrogate the circumstances of, and care for one another. And so, what we can be is moving across the malaise, what can we do to take on the awesome responsibility 
of living up to the opportunity of our existence? What can we do to promote a future for all of us in this country and the world? What happens when we meditate on what needs to happen next? So to the next part of the speech, meditation. Now how can you reclaim community and say we are all right, Jack, through acts of meditation? Meditation for me is the practice of mindfulness, the force of imagination that can bring something else into being. So I personally meditate on peace and freedom for all sentient beings. I meditate that we might reclaim our voice and our vision. I meditate even on quantum science that provides evidence that we are at a subatomic level at least, deeply and profoundly connected, that there is no separation between any of us, and in fact that separation is a matter of perception. I meditate on the fact that my community extends beyond my human realm, that it is physical and non-physical. I spend a lot of time meditating on impermanence and having been rolled out of two jobs in the past two years and experiencing unemployment with big mortgages encourages me to do so. I meditate on the constancy of change, of love and on what I can and can't change. I meditate on who I can and can't change. I meditate on the decisions I have to make. I meditate a lot when I drive to work, often acquiring many speeding tickets as a result. Then I meditate on the bill and I meditate with a little bit of resentment while making a voluntary contribution to that tax that I didn't need to make. But mostly, I meditate that we might change our relationship with the Earth community. I contemplate the, all the Earth's processes that makes our life possible. I meditate on the Earth as a beautiful blue and green orb in the darkness of space. And I spend a lot of time meditating upon our place in the universe and what it might mean to be a member of a universe community. Sometimes I meditate just to remember how to breathe. I meditate to get through the stress of my everyday life and find that it centres me. I would hope that you might meditate on your life, on your experiences, on the experiences of people around you, on the life you have lived, the world you occupy and those with whom you share your life. I think that meditation helps build your resolve and I want to share with you what I've resolved to do in the next phase of my life. And these five strategies are absolutely about reclaiming community, my primary community, the First Peoples of Australia, and I have structured these so that they might touch your life as well. The first four strategies are necessarily focused on the Australian context and the last is a globally focused concern. So the first strategy is in two parts that enables a context of diversity from which to progress, sustainability, justice and peace. The first part of this strategy involves all of us becoming aware of the rights and enacting the responsibilities contained in the 2007 Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. This affirms that Indigenous peoples are equal to all others and recognises the right to be different and the right to be treated as such. The Declaration affirms that all peoples contribute to the diversity and richness of civilizations and cultures which constitutes the common heritage of humankind and recognises that we should be free from discrimination, that we have a right to development in accordance with our needs and wishes and a right to constructive arrangements with the states in which we live. But what is at the heart of this declaration is the principle of diversity. Indigenous peoples are able to live diverse lives, self-determining lives. And if these are our rights, then how must we respond? The first that we must do is regain our respect for diversity in all of its forms and rid ourselves of the way of thinking and acting that makes diversity disappear. 
Every Aboriginal person and Torres Strait Islander person needs to participate in dialogues about what this might mean for our lives. We need to get the declaration of our shelves, take the articles into our everyday lived experience. Discuss these rights with young people who are in care, on trial, using drugs, homeless, our mob who have to constantly put their case before some caseworker in some office somewhere. Talk to single mothers and fathers, our elders and organisations. That's what we must to do. The second part of this first strategy is to support, facilitate all of my fellow Australians, all of you, to shift into that context of adversity by engaging with and committing to a yes vote in a referendum that recognises the status and contribution of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the constitution of this country. First peoples are inestimably precious. Our cultures, language and heritage can and should generate pride in us all. And great things happen when a populace is moved to do something great, to change the course of history, to hold true to the principles of democracy and recognise both equality and diversity. We have the chance to adhere to these principles by changing the constitution of Australia to both further the outcomes achieved for Indigenous Australians in 1967 and finally recognise that our country is made up of old and new Australians and show the rest of the world our maturity as a nation. The second strategy I'll invest my time in is concerned with language. Because if language is used in the policy environment, it represents Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples predominantly as not competent, as irresponsible, the source or cause of the problem, or the other. And it's no wonder then that policy emerging from this environment entrenches a limited world view of us, denigrates all that we're able to achieve within our communities and together as equals, and makes us an acceptable loss in the mission to modernise and globalise Australia. What we do with language is factor all of these things, the acceptable loss, into most of our affairs every single day. So I've heard people say in all phases of um, project development or program implementation or in the development of policy positions, don't worry about the drunks, you need to worry about the kids. But don't worry about the kids with fetal alcohol syndrome, only worry about those who can do well at school. Don't focus your attention on old people, focus on the zero to four year old age group. Investing in all children is thought to give Australia a bigger economic and societal return than investing in elders. Constructing older people as the acceptable loss, I find to be only permissible in societies that favour the young. And it's not conceivable in societies founded on elder wisdom traditions and principles. The third strategy is necessarily about the creation of alternatives. So using knowledge that sits outside of monocultures is really important because there is enormous healing and excitement in this space. And we need excitement in this space, yes we do. Now it's too hard for me to simplify and stereotype and amplify the negatives in our community because it distorts the reality on which most of us live. But the reality is that for a great number of people in our communities, life is pretty grim. Life is such that some children would choose to end their lives even before they get a chance to live it. Life is such that we have young people who have completed Year 12 but who are still unable to read or write. And despite our very best efforts, we as a nation have not come together in ways that solve the challenges 
like healthcare, education or the need to find well-paying jobs for every Australian. What we the people need to do is be willing to find meaning in something greater than our individual effort alone. Not for profit, not for personal gain, but because we value who we are. Therefore, I will not try to find alternatives in this space by comparing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples with non-Indigenous peoples. What this does is make that way of thinking and acting the norm, and I don't accept this as a central tenet in the way I live my life. I don't reject it, but I don't accept it entirely. Because what if the unbroken mission of Indigenous Australians became what was needed to be accomplished by all Australians? What would happen if the mission of caring for company, ah, company, if caring for country, of knowing it intimately, of placing your feet in the footsteps of your father, showed you the way to become a man? What would happen if all Australians to maintain the harmony between the environment and the way we lived became the central tenant? What would happen if people could accomplish the mission of reproducing their societies within the limits of ecosystems to which they are intimately a part? What would happen if your mission was to sing the sun up every morning? If your mission was to assist with rites of passage rituals? If you were the keeper of knowledge with all the species and all the things that you live your life with? What would happen if your mission was a spiritual one, framed, refined and evolved over 60,000 years? What would Australia look like then? Juxtaposed to that is the fourth strategy, which is about investing in a wealthy middle class. So I've moved from the first one, which was about looking for a context of diversity, transitioned through into... Um, God, I can't even remember what I said. Def addressing the deficit language in health. The third then is around creating alternatives. The fourth one now is about investing in a wealthy middle class. Now this seems to be a dirty word in our communities, but we have a growing number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander professionals in decision-making roles across government and industry and in higher education. And we're growing in our appreciation of the worldviews and perspectives of ourselves as people who are stepping up to the plate. Now, what we want to be able to do is help Indigenous peoples gain access to higher education and better long-term intergenerational wealth. Because we have, in the next few years, our first cohort of independently wealthy millionaires through the supply nation, through businesses that contract to multinational companies and through royalties. There will be in the next decade opportunities with new technologies, new apps, new jobs in fields yet not imagined. What we need to do is access more startup monies. We need ILC and IBA to invest in entrepreneurs. We need to tell kids that drop out of high school that they're just like Richard Branson. Foster curiosity and entrepreneurial zeal when we first recognise it. Invest in a middle class and in our millionaires. Now, I'm the very first female Torres Strait Islander professor and I want to be the very first Torres Strait Islander philanthropist and from this point when you're seeing more than what you are doing on a day-to-day -day basis by just surviving, when you can bring a population into wealth at the same time, when a collective view of generating wealth is taken, then cultural reinvestment occurs. People start taking language lessons start to learn and practice dance and take pride in themselves, in their nations 
and invest in the future of their children and in this country in a way which benefits us all. Finally, um, the fifth strategy is around to promote care for other than humans and to take an ecosystems approach to life and living. This strategy is globally focused and locally realised, taking the view that ecology and the health of all species are interrelated and at the nexus of the ecosystem sustainability, resilience and health for humans and for all species. And I say this because the survival of humans and animals depends on the way in which we manage our relationships within these ecosystems. The interrelationships between ecosystems and health poses practical and philosophical issues that can be complex, perplexing and challenging. And these challenges call upon our very best science, our clearest theorists and our thoughtful actions to explore new ways of working together. To me, this is the heartland of every Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person, which is a transdisciplinary space in which we can move outside of those discourses that are fixed and immovable into creative, synergistic thinking and flow. I offer these five strategies to do what I have always done, to extend the opportunity and care, dignity and hope to Indigenous Australians. I know that here others in the room um, know of justice denied, of consciousness and of actions that are morally indefensible and cause a great stain on the history of this nation. And I hope that you might heed a call to open our hearts and minds to the commonalities that we all have to this shared, if tragic, history and to the common things that need to be done. I believe deeply that we can resolve the challenges of our times together. We have different stories, but we hold common hopes. We may not look the same, but we may not have come from the same place, but we all want to move in the same direction towards a better future for our children and grandchildren. And in the third, very final part of this address, I said I wanted to focus on magnificence, on who we are when we let our light shine. And I'll share some signposts that mark the journey towards a union so needed in this country, one in which we take responsibility to contribute and invite the contribution of others. This union then mitigates against any group of people being the acceptable loss for the greater good. Evoking magnificence in our society, therefore, requires a deep appreciation of the necessity for diverse thinking, of competence in co-creating environments that are safe and accepting on one hand and honest and challenging on the other. The first is a signpost of the work being done by peak agencies in Australia, of which there are many in health, land rights, child protection and on other emergent issues. These agencies have supported their membership with the development of key policies and issues paper. The second signpost will be the encouragement of different cross-agency and portfolio approaches to particular issues. I, for example, would be interested to see how the issue of teenage pregnancy could be better dealt with. The negative incentives are very powerful. The receipt of baby monies, the lack of buoyant market economies, transitions between Year 10 and 11 and Year 12 in university or unemployment, access to public housing and a higher amount of money in the welfare payments, entrapment, the way young people are socialised, the use of alcohols and drugs, young women's empowerment, sexual education, reproductive health, all contribute to what these negative incentives are and how we might take advantage of them. But what could happen if members invested in health, housing, education, land rights, economic development, traditional owners, parents and young people, if we could then dialogue about what this and other issues, 
what would then happen if we were all inclusive of the diversity of people's lived experience and what was able to be expressed and what should happen in these instances with clarity, opportunity and purpose? Who would, who would listen to our collective voice and enable that collective action? Would you? I think you would. Because history is governed by those overarching moments that give shape and meaning to life by relating our human venture to the larger destinies of the planet. Creating such a work might be called the great work of a people. Each of us have our own individual life pattern and responsibilities, yet because these concerns, each, yet beyond these concerns, each person in and through their own personal work contributes to the great work. We cannot doubt that we have been given the intellectual vision, the spiritual insight and even the physical resources we need for carrying out the transition that is demanded in these times. Mutual enhancement is the vision for our future. It's a long-term proposition and there is much great work to be done. In the end, what is called for is nothing more and nothing less than what all the world's great religions demand, that we would do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Let us be our brother's keeper, scripture tells us. Let us be our sister's keeper. Let us find our common stake we have in one another and let our politics reflect that spirit as well. For we have a choice in this country. It's not enough to give health care to the sick or jobs to the jobless or education to our children, but it's where we start. It's where our union goes stronger. It's where the great perfection begins. But regardless of what combination of policies and proposals to get us to this goal, we must reach it. We must act, and we must act boldly. Leaders no longer have a reason to be timid, and Australians can no longer afford inaction. That's not who we are. That's not the story of our nation's improbable progress. Never forget that we have it within our power to shape history in this country, and that is what I love the most about our community. We never forget the lessons of those who teach us and help us lead. And it's not in our character to sit idly by as a victim of fate or circumstance, for we are a peoples of action and innovation, forever pushing the boundaries of what's possible. Now is the time to push those boundaries once more. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful conference. Go well and be magnificent. Thank you. Well, we've got some time for uh, questions, so you've got the opportunity. If you put your hand up high, there are microphones which will come around, and I'll field them. But, but first, Kerry, thank you very much. That was a marvellous uh, and inspiring speech. You, did, you, you didn't pull away from the, 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 the adversity and the grim picture for some people, but I think you also really described an exciting time to lead. Uh, and to lead not just for individual monocultural kind of control but for a, a real communities and diversity in control. So thank you very much for that. You also, uh, your own magnificent light shine and that <laughs> gave us permission I think to really uh, do some big thinking in this conference. So Thank you. Thank you. Can we get, thank Kerry again. Now, do we have uh, hands up nice and high if you've got a, a comment or a question that you'd like to make? Because uh, we've only got Kerry here for a little while. We have somebody down there. I've got one down there. Thank you. Just put your hand up too so I can... 
Good morning, Kerry. My name's Marina and I'm a community development worker in a country town in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. Hello, Marina. Hi. What an amazing start to the day. Thank you so much. That was so inspiring. Thank um, you. It was wonderful to learn about monocultures of the mind. Mm. Um, I've got a story for you which just happened last Wednesday and um, I hope my story doesn't make you too sad but I'm sure it's not going to surprise you. Um, as part of my role as a community development worker, I have a, a spot on the local radio every Wednesday. So last Wednesday I turned up. It's not the ABC, it's a commercial station. He said, what are you going to talk about this morning, Marina? And I said, oh, I've got three things to talk about. Next Wednesday, we have a raising of the flag ceremony in our local park in front of our Aboriginal mural. And great things have been happening at the men's shed and we've got the biggest morning tea. He said, well, I've got to stop you before we start because I don't believe in the... He said, what flag's being raised? I said, it's the Aboriginal flag. He said, well, I don't believe in that. I'm not going to let you talk about that. Mm. He said, and I said, right. So anyway, countdown, we're on air and the blood is, you know coming out to my head. Yes. I'm going purple. I'm talking about the niceties of what's happening at the men's shed and the niceties of the biggest morning tea. And I thought, what do I do now? Do I throw my papers down on the, the table? Do I walk out? Hmm. Do I debate him on air? Do I shoot myself in the foot? I felt powerless. I felt so angry. I didn't know what to do. Anyway, so I talked about the niceties and, you know, time's running out for me to make my move. And he said, now, Marina, I'm going to let you talk about the raising of the flag ceremony. And this is all going live to air. And I said, well, thank you very much for that opportunity. And, you know, it gave me um, an opportunity to debate with him. I wish I had you with me. <laughs> I'd like to invite you into the studio next Wednesday. And then we, we you know, we had a debate about multiculturalism. I mean, my parents, my grandparents are from a faraway country. So are his. But um, I've learned a bit about money, monocultures of the mind and the Malays. Um, but on a positive note, every month at our community centre we, we run sessions on meditation and mindfulness, mm. engaging with a, a local Indian lady who comes in and does that. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's great positive things happening in our community, but what do we do about this malaise um, and the power of someone who's on the radio every week? Mm. That's a very interesting story. It's not dissimilar. I mean, I dump into lots of cabs in regional Australia and I hear that same story every time I jump into a cab. I don't know what it is about me, but people want to tell me um, stories of, of, well, of denial of peoples of, of um, the history of this country. And what I started to focus on is um, where we're going to as a nation. And what I'm finding lacking at the moment is a really great narrative that captures all of our individual lived experiences, where we've all come from and where we're all going to. And I think in the absence of that kind of a story, um, we're all lacking. What we need to have is a meaningful story that captures the values of the way that we want to live our lives in future and what we might look like as an Australian nation in the next 50 to 100 years' time. And so rather than focusing on the very now, which is when people will put up those kind of barriers, I think, well, that's a very interesting comment, and I would have told him that's a very interesting position. It's not one that's dissimilar to a range of different peoples around Australia. It is a very, very common thought. But what does that actually contribute to a discussion about who we're going to be as an Australian nation in the next 50 years? And what kinds of values, what kinds of ethics do we want to live by? What kind of things are going to be important? Um, what will happen for Australia um, 
where will we be located? What will our politics look like? Um, we've got enormous ecological problems that will mean that we're all going to be having to live around very thin urban fringe around the coastlines of Australia. What kinds of thinking is going to be needed to, um, to manoeuvre our lived experiences through very challenging times in the next 50 years? So as soon as someone invites me to come small with them, which is the issue of whether we talk about a flag raising or not, what I do is, is broaden out their view again. And so I talk about all these different alternatives about where we might go to from here as a nation. Because that man has probably got 40 years of his life left. And so what's his legacy in the context of meaning and purpose and value and experience and opportunity that is going to um, be part of Australia in future. So that's how I would um, have that kind of discussion. And then the other thing is, it's that business about whether flags are raised or not. I personally absolutely love to see all of our flags flown. Um, but what I would do is talk about then um, constitutional reform. So I'd ask him on air, so um, whilst you have problems with the flag being raised, do you have problems with first peoples being included in the Constitution of Australia and recognising the rightful place and contribution um, and the richness of, that we bring to um, Australia as it is now. And I would probably have those kind of conversations. And there is lots of recommendations that were made in the constitutional reform process. There is a lot more dialogue going on now around our country. Uh, we have a rights agenda that's been very strongly adhered to. Um, it's been a signed off process through federal government. So I'd introduce a whole range of other things into his space and blow his mind. He's got no answer for everything, love. <laughs> he might have an answer for whether the flag should go up or not, but he hasn't got an answer for everything. Yeah. So you just got to ask him a question that he hasn't got an answer for. Yeah. And then you've got to have that answer. Yeah. Yeah. So you only ask the questions that you've got an answer for. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> Thank, thank you, Kerry. Thanks for giving me some great material for yeah. my Wednesday um, radio spot next week. And you can always call me. I can always come in on a line. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great. Thank you, Kerry. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a second uh, uh, person just here. And put your hand up if you've got some... Okay. Thanks. Hi, I'm Kirsty. I work in philanthropy with the Sydney Maya Fund and the Maya Foundation. So it was very exciting to hear you state your ambition of being the first Torres Strait Islander um, philanthropist, mm. yeah, not just woman philanthropist. <laughs> um, and Kerry, thank you. That was incredibly inspiring and you are now my new professional crush. That was just, <laughs> it was magnificent. <laughs> thank you. And Kerry, you mentioned rights a couple of times and now just in response to a question as well. I think that in, in some years past, rights have been bashed and we haven't been allowed to talk about rights and we have to catch everything in terms of economic benefit. So we can't mm. just see that abused child as um, having rights to a childhood without violence. It has to be catched in terms of that child's future contribution to our community. Mm. I'm wondering if you see that now we're moving back into a space where we can talk about a human rights approach to work in mm. the community and our community not just an economic benefits approach. Mm. Thank you very much for that and I'm very happy to be anyone's professional crush. <laughs> There's enough of me to go around. <laughs> A couple of times. <laughs> um. <laughs> 
thank you very much because actually the question might not have been about um, the, the, the rights of that child and then when we talk about economic benefits of the child, what we would have had to do is demonstrate a cost-benefit analysis of intervening earlier um, would actually cost less to do that now than later. And it's, it's economic rationalism gone wild. But it is absolutely a tool of that monoculture of the mind. I mean, that's how we rationalise the whole world. We, we try and break down our beautiful, magnificent complexity and interrelationships of all things into these little compartments of measured time, space, money. And, um, and that's what we believe will um, have an answer for us. And I think what we're finding across the planet is that it's not actually the answer. What it is, it's an end to a means, but who are we going to be as a species going forward and how many other species are we going to live with on this planet? I think we're in the sixth largest mass extinction um, at the moment and majority of that has been brought about through human interaction with our environment. So I think that there is a lot of opportunities now to be innovative, to actually step outside of that malaise. I know um, for myself, a lot of time um, I felt like I was working at a job in order to pay back the debt, in order to you know, put the kids through school, in order to get back into work to pay the job to pay the debt. And I felt like I was on this roundabout for a while. Um, it took me a long time, but I got rid of all of my credit cards, and so that was one stress I didn't have to worry about. I started to um, adjust my um, use of money differently and put it into different things, things that um, created enjoyment and a bit of beauty, had an aesthetic that um, I could live with, and I found myself um, spending more time in contemplation rather than raging. Um, and I think, I don't know if it's just the time of my life I'm at it, but um, putting more thought into um, what is beautiful rather than filling a need um, that you just end up empty with it anyway. You know, after you go out for a big money splurge, people often feel empty. And I don't know if that's, if that's the kind of satisfaction that we're looking for. So the conversations, I believe, need to change around what we find as satisfying, what do we find as meaningful. Because it's not on your deathbed that you're thinking about the 50 pairs of fabulous six-inch high heel numbers that you're able to strut your stuff around in. Usually it's around the people that you knew and the people that you love and um, the kind of a legacy that you've left. And that's what I'm predominantly interested in. And I'm sure a lot of you in this room are interested in the same things. So, yes, thank you. I will tell you a little story. The other night I was out and about, yep, and then over to there, yeah. but the other night I was out and about and I was facilitating this conference and in the afternoon everyone was starting to get a bit ratty and a bit noisy. So I threatened them all and I said, look, I'm going to come back at the night time, I'm going to MC this thing, but my hair's going to be out and it's just going to go, it's going to be shoulder to shoulder, enormous. Well, I came back afterwards because I had to do some other work and they said, Kerry, your hair's still in. I took it out. It got a bigger applause... My own hair got a bigger applause than I did and then I just had people sniffing it all night <laughs> saying it smells really nice. And I just said, look, it's Tracer May, people, from Bloody Coles or Woolies, whatever it is. Go and get yourself some. 11 bucks a bottle. It'll do fine. I'm sorry. I keep on telling these stories and looking down at Stephen Ross. If you get a chance over the next couple of days, please come down and meet Stephen. He is just delightful in the nicest kind of way. 
Sorry, question up the back. G'day, Ginda. Um, that means hello from where I come from. Hello. Um, I'm from the north coast of um, New South Wales. Mm. I'm actually the manager of an Aboriginal corporation. Mm. I just wanted to say thank you. That was um, really awe-inspiring. And it mm. was, it's actually nice to know that we're not alone in this thought process. Yes. Um, I work on a very um, community-based level and I've been trying to get that word out for years. Yeah. But it just feels like we're beating our head against the wall um, because of how disadvantaged the community is. Mm. So it's nice to see and it's really refreshing to see that there are all sorts of levels going on that have the same idea about where we should be going as a people. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Do we have one more up there? Over here? Yes. I hope I'm not missing people over here. Has anyone got their hand up over here? I I feel a bit monocultured like I'm just looking that (laughs) way. (laughs) But uh, please, if you've got some comments or want to uh, join in this discussion, uh, we've still got plenty of time. Thank Thank you, you, Kerry. It's been a fantastic start. I feel a bit like the Ever-Ready Bunny now. Thank you. Um, Your last comment about a a narrative and a meaningful story um, rang a bell for me. I've been a bit concerned lately about some of the stuff I'm hearing from Canberra, politicians talking about um, their dissatisfaction with the way our history has been taught. And that re- they keep talking about the black armband view and this sort of thing. That really concerns me because I wonder how we can go forward when we're still trying to put our stamp and our slant on history. And mm. I'm wondering how the hell we can take history out of politics or politics out of history and what you thought about that. Oh, goodness, that's not a small question um, or comment or um, asking. Um, I'm very interested by the Australian um, sentiment after big announcements have happened. So, for example, in 1967, when for the first time Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples were able to be counted in the census and felt like they were actually able to be constructed as citizens um, and were able to be asked their views, um, to have a referendum passed... I can't imagine what the elation felt like after that. I was there um, at the Sorry Day event when the Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, stood up and acknowledged the Stolen Generations people and the spontaneity of walking around Parliament House at that time um, just giving complete strangers hugs because we were just so overcome with the sentiment of it. Um, we're, We're a great people... I believe, Australians, we are absolutely prepared to celebrate great things and we often put our money where our mouth is before politicians came to the, the you know, to front line. And I'm thinking in particular of the tsunami that happened, um, I think it was Christmas Day, uh, a number of years ago and that um, the Australian population contributed an enormous amount of aid and relief monies because what we did was see someone who needed something and we were able to give it. So I'm not prepared in the first view to take, um, take a viewpoint that we're an ungenerous people. But I do think that what we need to do is find something to be generous about and generous for, 
because I think that even though we talk about it being highly individualised, that when we need to come out and when we do need to stand up, uh, we do it incredibly well and, and it's something that we can all take pride in. So what is it that Australians can feel generous about? What is it that Australians can take pride in? What is it that we can all together um, look forward to? And um, those, I think, are going to give a bigger overarching meaning to what history happened, um, how we can acknowledge the tragic history of our country's um, improbable development, but where we might go to from here. And um, that's what I'm finding lacking. I'm not so much concerned about history in schools. I understand what happened historically and I understand the history of this region even in lots of ways. I'm more concerned with what our future looks like. And I don't think what we do is spend any time thinking about the next 50 or 100 years. And I don't think anyone here in a community organisation, for example, has thought about whether you're all still going to be here in the next 50 and 100 years and what it is that you might be doing. And I think that that's really important because, as I said in the speech, I think you are the leaders. You are the leaders. You are the people who are going to make this a better country and a better world. Your organisations give you the platform for that to happen. What will you look like in the next 10, 20, 50 years? And what will you be doing? And those are some of the bigger fundamental questions, I think, that politicians can't answer for us. They are there because of the will of the people. So we need to make our will be heard. And in order for that to be heard, what we need to do is have the kind of conversations that you're going to participate in over the next couple of days. What is my will? How will I make it heard? And that's how you reclaim your community. Thank you. I wonder, if, can I just ask one, Kerry? Mm. I beg an indulgence of you all, but you, that's what we're talking then about how we bring those questions. And I wonder sometimes about our, our whole systems of working being so adversarial in our legal and political systems that we tend to then get, uh, bring about arguments that are pretty base, self-interested, and yet all that you're talking about uh, points to and addresses what's big about us, our better nature, uh, mm. the, no, the noble kind of thing. Mm. Uh, how can our systems promote that rather than sort of promote the other, uh, more adversarial and narrow thinking? Well, again, I think it's a very clear demonstration about that monocultured thinking has a very simplistic and the reduced worldview. So what you do is you make a five-word tagline describe all of this incredible complexity and all of these wonderful ideas and notions that we're able to bring into play. And what we do is have a big disconnect. Um, for example, why do we talk about the health of Australians without talking about the health of the ecosystems in which we're living in this country? Why can't we have a, co a conversation about healthy communities, healthy country, um, healthy futures, for example? And what we do is we leave out these big parts because they're all too hard to address. But their politics and the legal systems um, are there to reinforce a particular worldview. And what happens in community outside of that worldview is these amazing ideas, these incredible innovations. And what we need to do is come together more often to not so much challenge what that politics and legal systems say, but create alternatives and then create the people's movement that's going to give the groundswell so that we can affect change. And um, we do it very well in community and we do it with the smell of an oily rag. You people, me, 
We have worked in chronically under-resourced environments since time out of mind and yet we are the ones that do the volunteer work. We're the ones that actually make things happen. We are the enablers and we, we change things for the better, I believe. And um, it's, you, you're based on a set of principles and values that are incredibly important and we need to start celebrating what they are. We need to think about what they mean for all of us as a sector and we need to be able to harness the collective energy of everyone here in the room and vote with our feet and our hearts. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, down on this table here. Kerry, I'm Pat Boyan from Catholic Care. Um, I also want to thank you very much for a very inspiring um, talk. I've enjoyed it very much and I've also enjoyed um, the um, questions that people have put up. Um, I've had a passion for many years about uh, providing educational opportunities, especially for our vulnerable children. And um, I'm just interested in what your thoughts are. On a scale of 1 to 10, where would you put educational opportunities for children in comparison to some of the other social issues that our children are facing and our communities face? And do you have any thoughts on how we can assist children to re-engage in education? Uh, governments come up with things like um, finding parents, um, not even thinking about what the social issues uh, might be behind mm. uh, children being disengaged. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Mm. Goodness me, you're really making my brain work a bit this morning. But um, in terms of what that means for me, what I find is that we only reward a particular kind of literacy. Whereas I find that vulnerable kids have incredible range of literacies, but we don't give any value or legitimise them. So they are emotionally literate. They can walk into a room, they can smell who the good ones and the bad ones are. They are literate when they live on the streets. They know where to go to for a feed. They know how to protect themselves. They know a whole range of different things. They are culturally literate. They are um, literate on what their needs are. I think people are actually able to describe what their needs are very, very well. And there have been certain things in their lives that have happened that have given them that level of education. Whether it skills them to participate in high school or not, I don't know. But what we're intent on doing in Australia is developing a professional class. You know, that's what we're intent to do because that's what all the jobs tell us at the moment is possible. Um, I said that Richard Branson, um, we should be telling more black kids that drop out of school that they're just like Richard Branson. Um, none of the multi-billionaires that are around in the country, um, this country or others completed high school. Um, all of them went out on their own. All of them had an idea. All of them uh, were entrepreneurial and supported in that. Um, a whole range of different kinds of things happened in their lives, hardships. They went down a couple of times and they lived up. You, you know, I'm just thinking about the Aussie Home Loans guy that bloody went bankrupt about three or four times before he actually, um, you know, stabilised. Um, and so what it is, it's around a preparedness to take risks. Now, what we do is think that kids who go to high school are safe, but it's also a place where bullying happens, um, a whole range of other laterally violent activities happen in schools. Um, teachers um, find it very difficult with the kind of class sizes that we've got. Um, and so I think the nature of education is changing. 
And what will also happen, particularly in the highest education sector, is a movement now. We've seen it happen in the newspapers. We've seen it happen in retail. We'll see it happen in education about moving into online scenarios. So it won't happen so much in classrooms. In the next 10 years, I reckon um, it will happen, you know, via an interface with an iPad or some such thing. And you'll have classrooms of maybe 6,000, not 60. I don't know. But in terms of all of that, vulnerable kids have different literacies. We need to find a way of legitimising them. Classes need to be safe for vulnerable kids with different literacies. So we need to think about how we might make them safe. We need to, for those who aren't going to reconnect in with the community of school, then we need to hook them in with another community. And it might be that, you know, the business thinkers at University of Melbourne pulls them aside and says, well, what's your big idea then? And we teach them to do a 30-second pitch to start-up companies. We should talk to the philanthropists at the back of the room there, my new professional buddy up the back. Um, you know, and then sort of get some different ways of thinking about what vulnerability is because I actually think those that we classify as vulnerable are actually some of the most resilient. They are anti-fragile people who have lived with extraordinary circumstances and uh, we need to be able to recognise and value that first. Thank you. We'll have one last contribution over here and then we'll be going to morning tea. So bear that in mind. Hi, thanks. Um, Grant Russell from IBN Corporation in Port Hedland. I just wanted to know, have you got any good examples of investing in old people? Sorry? Do you have any good examples of investing in old people? Not so much from a health point of view, but from a, a culture... Look, University of the Third Age. There you go. Um, mentoring programs where, for example, I'm on the board of the Indigenous Community Volunteers and we have a lot of people who have been retired who now go into communities and invest in those kind of ways. I think when you have... Um, cultural educators going into schools to do those kind of initiatives, that what you're doing is, is utilising and respecting their knowledges. Um, I think there are a couple of different ways in which we think about old people and, and keep, keep, them in, um, keep them in a way which is within the family's context, which is a very interesting point. Um, I don't think we care for our old people terribly well. I think that um, we're an ageist society where we value, um, you know, between the ages of 20 and 40. If you haven't made your mark or measure then, I don't know how valuable you are afterwards. And I see this when we, um, some friends of mine who are a little bit older than me are starting to, um, their contracts are finishing up, they're going for other positions, but they're going up against the 26 and 27 year olds and they're missing out. And um, they're at that age which is just before super, so they haven't got any backstops anymore. And people are particularly vulnerable. I find people are vulnerable after they've been um, separated through, you know, their marriages have broken down, separation, a whole range of other things, and they've got to learn a whole set of skills again that they may not necessarily have. So there are lots of ways to do interventions that focus on shoring people up. But in terms of expanding their minds and making sure that they are... Um, part and parcel of Australian society and not just the subject of our interventions. It'll be very interesting to see how we do that, um, particularly with the new dementia initiatives, for example. So all of these monies are packaged towards um, fixing the problem of dementia rather than celebrating the contribution of elders. 
And that's what I was talking about is that second strategy is really thinking about the language and how we use it. Because you can structure someone as a problem or as a leading light in about four words. And those four words have enormous impact on how policies get played out, how people, um, what confidence they have, how you position them to in relation to yourself. And um, I think demographically we're moving towards this older um, age group, um, except in the Aboriginal communities where we're power on through half of our population are under the age of 15. So we've got these really big mismatches demographically around what um, what our elderly um, what our elders look like and how we care for them. I think, um, I think there's a lot of work to go on in that area, but just remember absolutely how we frame elderly people or the elders in our communities um, because we'll all be there one day. You With know? Any so luck. think about how you want to be described yourself. With any luck, we'll all get there. Absolutely. Can you join with me in thanking Kerry Arabella? Thank you, everybody. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.